Welcome to the How to Resist podcast. My name is Will O'Neill. The How to Resist podcast is a space for talking about how anyone can become an activist and take a strategic approach to resisting the Trump administration and making an impact in their communities, their workplace, their country, and the world. Each week, we're going to sit down with an activist who will tell us how they came to be empowered and how they resist the injustices they see around them and the Donald Trump administration. How to Resist isn't a space where we're going to try to convince you why it is important to resist injustice in general and Trump in particular. There are plenty of other places for that conversation. We're here to let you know that you are empowered to make change in the world around you. Oh, and hey, one thing before we get to the interview, if you've been listening to the show, could you please take a moment and leave a review on iTunes or whichever podcast app you use? It would be really, really helpful. Since last week's episode, more details have emerged about Trump's Muslim ban 2.0, hate legislation that is being challenged across the country. This racist policy will do exactly nothing to increase the safety of Americans and sends a clear message from Trump that state-sponsored bigotry will be the main feature of his administration. The Congressional Budget Office has examined the Republican repeal of the Affordable Care Act and said that it will increase the number of people uninsured by 24 million by the year 2026. This plan isn't about health care, it's about tax cuts for the rich. And using parliamentary procedure to create tricks to ensure that there's going to be a lot more tax cuts for the rich in the coming months. Jeff Sessions asked U.S. attorneys from the Obama administration to resign last week. Many of them found out through the media. The administration is obsessed with getting rid of civil servants and government employees, going after an imagined deep state. It's red meat for the base, but there really is no deep state, just people who work for a living who are concerned because their new boss's catchphrase is, you're fired. Activists rallied this week across the country against the Muslim ban, with hundreds showing up at Customs and Border Protection last Tuesday. Creative acts of resistance are happening across the country. Healthcare activists staged a die-in in Brooklyn, and organizations are asking their members to call Congress to oppose the Republican health care plan. Immigrant rights activists are planning events to coincide with the implementation of Trump's Muslim ban this coming Thursday. This week, I'm talking with Ra'ed Jarrar. Ra'ed is an Iraqi-American activist and serves as the government relations manager for the American Friends Service Committee. Trained as an architect, Ra'ed found himself displaced during the 2003 American-led Iraq War and blogged about his experience with a friend, a blog which became one of the most read examples of what was in 2003 still a relatively new format. A subject matter expert on U.S. relations with the Arab world, Ra'ed has testified before Congress many times and often appears as a guest on U.S. and international media. Rod, thanks. Thanks for being on the show. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time and you're inviting me into your home. Thank you. I really appreciate you being here. Um, could you tell me a little bit about how you're resisting the Trump administration right now? That's a big, that's a big question. Uh, it's, uh, I, I view it as a continuation of, uh, a lot of, of the work that I've been doing for the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, many people who have been involved in foreign policy and um, domestic work uh, pertaining to the federal government unfortunately realize that many of the very bad policies that we are discussing now have existed all along. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, 
you know, I'm happy that there is more of a public debate uh, and interest in uh, resisting these policies. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that many of the policies existed all along. Uh, many of them have been almost as bad as now. Um, but of course, the rhetoric is different and the rhetoric uh, is important. It's not a detail. It's not just about marketing policies. It's also about making racism and xenophobia mainstream. Mm-hmm. And that was not mainstream in the past. So to give you an example, when I immigrated to the U.S. back in 2005, there was a Muslim registry. You know, there was a registry that was created by the Bush administration at the time that required many people coming to the U.S. from majority Muslim countries to register. Right. And, and what, I ha- was that, what was that called? It was called the Special Registry System. So I, ha- I had to register with that and tell the government where I lived. And whenever I moved, I had to inform them. And I thought that was outrageous when it happened. Uh, but it wasn't very common knowledge. Uh, and there wasn't a very big resistance to it uh, at the time. Now that this administration is trying to bring back those policies with so much more um, hate and racism uh, in packaging them, it's not only bringing down back the registry idea, it's, it's also bringing back uh, ideas of justifying attacks against Muslims, uh, making it okay to be racist and xenophobic. So now... The number of attacks against Muslim Americans is on the rise. It's the war since 9-11. Mm-hmm. It's, it's worse than 9-11. It's worse than 9-11. And, and that, so I'm saying the rhetoric is not something that I'm looking at as a byproduct or as a way that they're marketing their policies. It's actually extremely dangerous because it's allowing or giving a, you know, a green light to many um, racists who were hiding in the past to come out to the streets and act as if their ideologies are legitimate. So, so it's, I'm, you know, my point again is that many of the policies are the same, but um, what we're dealing now, what we're, we're dealing with now, is this additional layer of extremely dangerous rhetoric that is uh, activating uh, groups outside the government who are being racist and dangerous. Mm-hmm. And we didn't really have that that much in the past. So ironically, the most dangerous thing about the Trump administration is not the administration itself. It's the racist groups outside of the administration who feel empowered by this administration's rhetoric. And how? what are some of those policies when we're talking about the racist rhetoric that's coming out of the Trump administration. We're talking about how they're putting forward these ideas. Do you think that this is empowering more extreme forms of registrations, more extreme forms of legislation that we're going to be seeing coming out? Um, One of the things that I've been really concerned about, and um, we're speaking on the 12th of March uh, and last Monday, they came out with what's being called Muslim Ban 2.0. And in some ways, it's a scaled back version of the first Muslim ban that came out on January 27th. But it doesn't include uh, Iraqis and it doesn't include people who already have green cards. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's still a radical racist policy. 
Um, do you feel that the rhetoric plays into how they're going to be pushing more extreme policies? Definitely. And, uh, I mean, that is another example. Like, uh, in the past, there were countries uh, that the U.S. government had uh, restricted access. Uh, so it wasn't as um, dramatic as a ban, uh, but it was very hard for people from a number of countries uh, these exact seven countries were identified by the Obama administration, actually, not by the Trump administration, um, to uh, to have secondary screening or restricted number of visas. Um, now, of course, the way that this uh, whole Muslim ban was announced by the uh, by the president, and the intention uh, behind it was to uh, ban Muslims from coming to the U.S. That's what the president said very clearly, before he became a president. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, uh, even with the um, news about how the first Muslim ban came to, uh, you know, like the the committees behind the first Muslim ban, um, also revealed that the intention behind it was to ban Muslims. And the intention behind these policies is important, you know. Um, I've uh, heard and read many... Uh, very deep analysis by constitutional scholars, by attorneys who are specialized uh, in constitutional law, who, who speak about uh, um, the importance of intention, like the intentionality or uh, mm-hmm. intentions behind uh, regulations. And a good example that I I read read about was that you know if a city council uh, says that every uh, you know, sit, every resident in that city are required by a new law to clean their um, front yards every Saturday. Um, that doesn't sound like a discriminatory law. But if the, uh, you know, the head of the city council or a few members of that talked about uh, getting rid of Jewish members of the community for months before passing this, mm-hmm. then the intention behind having that law on a Saturday, becomes more relevant. And Mm -hmm. then that law becomes discriminatory. And I think in the case of uh, the ban against Muslims, if you read the Muslim ban 2.0 at face value, it might might make sense to someone, you know, out of no context. Mm -hmm. But that's not how the U.S. works as a country. And we have the context. We have the context, and the context is on record. And I think the fact of the matter is that this administration is trying to find a way to uh, translate racism and anti-Muslim sentiments into policy. And they're going through this, this path. And I think the fact that they're starting with six or seven countries um, doesn't matter, you know, even if they went with one country. It's not about the fact that not every Muslim is banned. It's the fact that there is an intention to ban Muslims from coming to the U.S., because of their faith. Yeah. And, and that is something that um, you know, is illegal and we should continue to object to. And it's racist and it's discriminatory. And it comes from the same mentality that has justified killing Muslims for the last decades, that has justified discriminating against Muslims and Muslim Americans inside the U.S. So, of course, we have to fight it. You know, we have to fight it regardless of the technicalities mm-hmm. of how they wrote the law. And the administration definitely seems to want it both ways in that it's saying one thing on CNN 
but it's sending out fundraising letters explicitly saying this is a Muslim ban. Um, you have Trump tweeting out this is a ban, um, and then you have other uh, mechanisms within the administration saying no, it's not a ban. So, so what are you doing to fight against not only the Muslim ban but against a lot of our Middle East policy? Uh, and how can other people engage in that sort of work? I'm doing some some of the work in my capacity as the government relations manager of the American Friends Service Committee. So that's my day job. Uh, and my organization, which is a very old Quaker organization, it's 100 years old this year. Um, we have uh, a few programs uh, that have been dealing with Islamophobia. Uh, the most important one is our new project called uh, Communities Against Islamophobia. So it's a number of uh, our offices and communities around the U.S. Uh, who have been um, trying to organize with local uh, activists, uh, you know, and grassroots uh, constituents uh, to educate them about um, Islamophobic uh, sentiments and policies, and organize to try to stop it. You know, a good example is AFSC helped with a few of the. Uh, protests and demonstrations outside airports that happened in the last few months uh, or helped with some legal support in some of these cases. And from an interfaith point of view, um, are the friends working with other uh, Christian organizations and other Muslim organizations and other Jewish organizations to build that, um, to create those education devices and create that those dialogues yes uh, i think that that's like the the main theory uh, is that uh, afsc as a quaker organization would step in and work with partners uh, and work with muslim communities around the u.s as well uh, to address some of these issues uh, and to uh, spread public awareness uh, so uh, like one of the issues that uh, afsc has been uh, trying to work on uh, is to draw attention to how uh, some of our supporters uh, end up contributing to Islamophobia by mistake. Mm -hmm. You know, like I will give you a, a couple of examples. Uh, one of the uh, narratives that has been uh, emerging in the last few months is that we should allow Muslims to come to the U.S. Uh, because they're good, uh, they might be good allies in the war on terror. And that is, in a way, also Islamophobic or uh, reiterates uh, negative uh, stereotypes about Muslims in the sense of it looking at Muslims uh, as either uh, subjects to terrorism or, um, you know, warriors against terrorism. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, you know, Muslims are, uh, Muslim yes. Americans should also be seen as, you know, equal citizens yes. who have the right to be in this country or immigrants who are coming to this country have equal rights to other immigrants whether they wanted to work with the intelligence community and army and go fight against whatever or if they wanted to be here and work as teachers or doctors or architects or whatever right mm -hmm. so so like that it's kind of um, you know and, and, and there's this idea that either terrorism or knowledge about terrorism is a part of every Muslim community. Exactly. So like that, that reinforces that, those negative Exactly. That's like all Muslims are privy to, you know, information about terrorism because of their faith. So like if you get some of them 
to come here and help us we will know more so it comes like from these conspiracy theories against muslims so that's like one example like that we advise our constituents on refraining from uh, referring to any of these you know t word you know the mm -hmm. terrorism and the extremism and whatever when we talk about muslims to to give them equal footings another example that i like to talk about all the time uh, is the way that uh, muslims are portrayed uh, even among friendly uh, media outlets as, um, you know, we should let them in. Mm -hmm. uh, they're portrayed as this other or, um, you know, a foreign entity. And that's also a part of the anti-Muslim rhetoric that came in this country in the last few decades because Muslim Americans um, have existed since the 1700s and denying that Islam has been a part of the history of the United States is actually equivalent to denying that African Americans uh, have contributed to building uh, the U.S. or uh, to being here in, in the United States. Because the fact of the matter is that um, many, if not the majority, of slaves who were shipped from Africa uh, in the 1600s, 1700s, and 1800s happened to be Muslim. Mm -hmm. uh, and so Islam is not a religion that landed on the shores of this country a couple of years or a couple of decades ago. It's actually rooted uh, in the U.S. and it has been here for centuries. So talking about Islam as a new religion or a foreign religion is not accurate either. Uh, and it contributes to this uh, portrayal of uh, Islam as an other that you know we, we have the option of either accepting or rejecting. It's not true. Islam has been here. It is a part of the U.S. It is a part of what this country is. And it's a different... Um, image to think about it that way than think about it as this other that is visiting so there are many examples you know like so i'm giving these examples to say that it's not about reaching out to anti-muslim bigots to mm -hmm. uh, to fight them it's also about preaching to the choir yes you know because the choir is, <laughs> the choir can be is confused sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, and i think people don't know that most muslims in america were born here you know most muslims in america are probably African-American. Most Muslims in, are in America, you know, have roots in their communities that go back a lot farther than just the last 20 years. That's correct. And I think, like, the majority of uh, Arabs or Muslims in the U.S. who are subject to discrimination are people like me, you know, people who came to the U.S. as immigrants, who have foreign accents, um, who are perceived to be um, Muslim. Uh, but like maybe older generations are less likely to be uh, discrim discriminated against at, in airports or whatever. Uh, but that, the fact of the matter is when we talk about Islam as a religion, you are right. The demographics of Muslims in the U.S. are very interesting. Um, around one-third of them are, are African-American, around one-third are um, uh, South Asian-American, and one-third are Arab. Um, and, but we, when you look at Arabs on the other side, uh, half of the Arab community in the U.S. is Christian, the other half is Muslim. Uh, but when you when you listen to mainstream coverage about Muslims or Arabs, uh, I think it's uh, very often used interchangeably, mm -hmm. as if all Arabs are Muslim or all Muslims are Arabs. And this is another uh, mistake, uh, you know, or lack of uh, understanding of the demographics in the U.S. So, so yeah, you're or, right. Or purposeful. It is some sometimes purposeful too. But you, you're right to point out that. Um, you, you, like the Muslim uh, American community is indigenous to this country. The vast majority of Muslims are born here. Um, and not, not to say that, you know, for people who are not born here, they're, they, 
they deserve less protections. But mm-hmm. I think it's an important perception issue to understand that uh, um, you know Muslim Americans have been in, in the U.S. for generations and generations. So when we talk about allowing them in or kicking them out, you know, we should put that in context. Mm-hmm. And um, outside of the work that you're doing with the the friends, what do you, what are you doing in terms of your activism? Uh, you know, a, a few other uh, like. I, I'm engaged in a few smaller campaigns in D.C. Uh, and uh, the work in D.C. might be as easy as, you know, going to an airport to um, to protest or, or going to coalition meetings or even engaging with friends and, and um, you know, other community members in these types of uh, discussions. Uh, one thing that I'm very interested in in D.C. Uh, is to work with um, other um, communities that are under attack. Uh, rather than just uh, focus on issues of Muslim Americans. Like, for example, D.C. has a very large um, immigrant community from uh, Latin America, from South America. And uh, this community is also under attack. And I have been you know, very interested in uh, participating in um, some of that effort uh, as well. Uh, I think we are we are going through a very interesting moment in that sense where, um, you know, the word intersectionality is very loaded now, sometimes mm-hmm. overused. But um, I, I, I have been paying more attention to uh, other um, efforts by, you know, other marginalized communities under attack um, because it's important not only to work together. I mean, that's definitely something important but also to keep those communities um, in mind while doing my work. Mm. Uh, so, like, I think the, um, like, you know, the best uh, variation of inter- intersectionality is when people can actually, you know, hold hands and go to campaigns together and, and understand each other's um, causes. But the minimum that I have been thinking about is while we're doing um, work to support Muslim communities, that we don't harm other causes. Uh-huh. And I have seen that uh, repeatedly. And to give you a, a couple of examples, uh, I have heard many of my friends or people who at pro-Muslim rallies uh, say things such as, you know, Muslims deserve to be here. We haven't, you know, crossed uh, under a fence to come to this country. Uh-huh. Uh, and like, and it's, uh, like or, I, or America is a nation of immigrants. Yeah, or, or like America is a nation of immigrants. So like it, you end up yeah. like, you know... It, Stepping on the on the rights of Native Americans or or Latinos by, by trying to like you know prove yourself, and I've also been to other um, you know events or or rallies where um, immigrants from uh, Latin America um, gave uh, speeches saying you know I, I fought for this country, I killed terrorists for this country, and I deserve to be a citizen. And see, like so, like sometimes I feel like even if we don't want to work together. Um, actively, uh, I think understanding how some of this rhetoric ends up justifying oppression against other communities is a minimum um, for um, uh, at least coexisting, you know, w- without harming each other. So, so I've been paying a lot of attention to that, like on a personal level and uh, w- within my work as well. Very cool. Um, how did you get? into activism or how did you become an activist and, mm. and i know that that's you you have a, a long history of being a high profile mm. sort of anti-war person and, yeah i 
unlike many of my friends and colleagues who uh, chose to become activists uh, and I admire them uh, and I think uh, it's it's a hard choice to become an activist uh, by uh, when you you know when you don't come from an activist uh, community or family and you decide to uh, dedicate your life for issues bigger than uh, like everyday like routine um, activities I, I, that wasn't my case I am an architect uh, in training by training and um, I used to go to work as an architect and come back home as an architect like I wasn't involved that involved politically um, uh, in Iraq uh, in 2003 uh, you know I, like I had a blog you know I talked about politics a little bit but I was in no means like uh, um, you know, someone who spent all of my time working on politics until there was a war mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, bombs fell in my neighborhood. Uh, and uh, I felt that I had to switch from being an architect who did, you know, 5% uh, activism and um, community service to someone who would dedicate all of my time to uh, exposing uh, what the U.S. invasion in Iraq have done to Iraq and try to prevent other wars. So, I, like, I participated in, and, and helped um, uh, create a, a network to um, um, document civilian casualties in Iraq. And that was in 2003, one of the narratives that the U.S. had in Iraq, that that was a smart war that mm. only killed bad guys, whatever. Um, so I helped with this uh, creating, uh, and, and I worked with Civic, uh, Civic Worldwide, uh, which was a, you know, a small organization. Uh, we collected information about um, civilian casualties in Iraq to expose that war was killing civilians. Um, and then I got more involved in, in other political issues. So the fact of the matter is that I didn't really wake up one morning uh, and decide to um, dedicate my life to stopping wars. Uh, I woke up one morning because bombs fell on my neighborhood. And I felt like it's out of necessity to step in and change my my work and my career. Um, so I feel like, uh, on the one hand, I'm less privileged. Uh, you know, that, But on the other hand, I feel uh, like... I don't have as much of a claim to fame when it's, uh, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. or that I am an activist because I became an activist by necessity, yeah. <laughs> not by choice, you know. Uh, when I came to the U.S., um, but, but you, th- could, you know, that's you other... You could give it up, though. I, I, you could I, go back and be I an could, architect you know, again. And... I tried, actually, when I came to the U.S. Okay. I, I mean, I, I thought, like, you know, maybe I can come to the U.S. and work as an architect again. Um, th- there wasn't that much uh, interest in... Um, uh, like it wasn't very easy for me to work on architect number one because uh, I, you know my certificates need, needed years until I, I managed to to get it in order, uh, and everyone was interested in my political opinions uh-huh. about Iraq. I just came from Iraq, you know, um, so definitely there was more interest, and I felt more like the calling to to do that. You know, it was hard for me to go back to designing, you know, someone's bathroom. Uh, while there is uh, like a, 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 um, a war going on, um, so I, I mean I think it's a, it's a it's a combination of both. But the other thing that happened to me is that you know aside from 
my anti-war activism is that less than a year after coming to the U.S., uh, I was prevented uh, from boarding on an airplane because they had a T-shirt that had Arabic writing on it. Uh, and I I was shocked that that happened to me in New York. Um, you know, was that a domestic flight? It was a domestic flight from New York to uh, Los Angeles. And um, I mean, I for me... Think, and I think a lot of people think that these screenings are only happening mm-hmm. on international flights, but I think that it's really important to realize that they're happening on domestic flights too, and they not do. only it's it not only TSA, but it's Customs and, Customs and Border Protection as well. You're right. So, like, I was stopped by the TSA and by the security of JetBlue, the airline that I was flying, and um, they tried to prevent me from uh, boarding the airplane because of my T-shirt, because the T-shirt had Arabic on it. And of course, you know, the irony of me um, losing my country and uh, having to immigrate somewhere else because of a war that at the time was waged uh, to justify um, or justified by saying this is a war to spread democracy and freedom. You know, that's how the Bush administration spoke about the war in Iraq in 2003. So the irony is that, like, I, I had to leave Iraq um, and I get stopped in uh, New York <laughs> and prevented from expressing my <laughs> freedoms and rights. And so I, I, I fought that um, uh, situation and I uh, seeked representation by the ACLU and the ACLU represented me. It was a very large lawsuit. Uh, it took three years. I ended up uh, winning $240,000 um, uh, when, uh, when the lawsuit was, was over by 2009 which is the largest settlement in a civil rights case since 9-11 uh, to date. Um, so I also got involved in issues of you know, Islamophobia and anti-Arab and anti-Muslim sentiments that translate into me being stopped because of a t-shirt. Hmm. Um, and um, so that's, that's also like something that I, I don't feel like I necessarily chose, but I chose to fight. Um, and I chose to fight against uh, you know, the TSA and, um, and JetBlue taking away my rights. Um, so, so like I feel like my, you know it's a combination, and for many people they don't know that I'm the t-shirt guy uh-huh. <laughs> because I most of my work is on war. I see these two issues as I saw them from day one uh, as the same, yeah. uh, the same mentality that justifies invading Iraq and killing Iraqis, uh, justifies stopping me and treating me as a second class citizen here in the U.S. You know, and that's why I chose to fight against it. And now it's it's more, even more apparent. It's more clear that the uh, war policies and foreign policy uh, that the U.S. government ascribes to that uh, justifies killing Muslims and invading their countries is exactly the same policy that justifies burning a Muslim mosque Mm -hmm. in our community or stopping uh, a Muslim in an airplane in the U.S. or trying to ban Muslim refugees and immigrants from coming to the U.S. It all comes back to this one idea of racism, uh, white supremacy, and anti-Muslim sentiments. Uh, and, and that's why I think it's, it's, what, what it's a you, combined, you know? What do you mean when you say white supremacy? Because I think that I think that, that phrase mm-hmm. gets a lot of white people's sort of hackles up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of when we hear that phrase, uh, I think for a lot of white folks, we sort of like back off and say, wait a minute, are you saying that we're like the... Ku Klux Klan or something like that. Mm. And I think that there's a different conversation about when activists and people who are involved in anti-Islamophobia or anti-racist work talk about white supremacy and sort of the 
average person on the street talking about white supremacy as mm. something that's extreme, but it's something that we see in our daily lives. Could mm. you just sort of say what you mean by by that? Sure, and like I understand that you know, like this issues of people feel fragile when um, they feel like they're being attacked as a group, um, and um, like I think like I experience that as well. Uh, in many cases, like the attacks against uh, Muslims uh, are attacks that generalizes against this one group to say this one group is doing something and we all oppose this. Um, but also at the same time, there are criticisms to men, yeah. uh, you know, taking too much space in society. And uh, when I receive these two criticisms differently, uh, I hear the attacks against Muslims uh, different than hearing criticisms against, uh, you know, straight men. As a straight man, I understand that it's true. Straight men are taking a big space in society, and I try to take it as a constructive um, criticism and take a step back. But when I hear an attack against Muslim communities who are being discriminated against, who are the underdog, who are being killed and marginalized every day, uh, I think I I take that in a different way. Now, criticisms to, uh, you know, white supremacy in the U.S., I think, uh, like... uh, falls closer to the way that I um, view uh, criticisms to statement, right? Uh-huh. Uh, because uh, the society that we're living in now uh, is, in the U.S., um, white Americans have more privilege than non-white Americans. Mm-hmm. And uh, criticisms to how that is a part of our social construct, and just trying to point out to it, right? So even if you as an individual... Um, you're not racist, you don't think racist ideas, but how do you as an individual fall within that larger network that is privileged? Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that your ancestors, you know, maybe 100 years ago or 50 years or 200 years ago participated in an economic system that made them more privileged, that ended up privileging you now. The fact that there is an African-American living in the same city here, you know, a few miles away, who has no education or is illiterate, how did the history of their ancestors leave them to where they are now? So it's, you know, regardless of our personal opinions, I think there is a collective uh, role that we play or we come from. The same, like I will go back to the example of me being a straight man. And I don't consider myself to be a misogynist. Uh, Like I try to be very, um, you know, cautious about my interactions with with my... um, you know, non-straight men yeah. uh, networks. Uh, but at the same time, I understand that me being a straight man in the U.S. comes with privileges. Uh, so I don't deny the privileges, and I try to work on it. And I think the same issue should should become there um, for, for, like, you know, wh- I, white I think, Americans. I, I think for a lot of white folks, lo- I think a lot of white folks look at our society and say, whatever I've gotten, I've earned for myself without really putting a critical eye towards the fact that, like you said, with being a, a straight man, you know, we have certain benefits as straight guys that other people don't see as much. Um, yeah, and so, and, 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 so I think a part of it is just like, um, it, it it's starting this yeah. discussion, right? Like, like what does uh, um, white privilege mean in the U.S., right? Like, like white privilege is a softer uh, word than uh, white, like white supremacy, right? Like, what does white privilege mean in the U.S.? Like, what are the economic factors that uh, contribute to it? What's the, what are the historic factors that contribute to it? 
Um, and um, I think also like the other term that that uh, like my organization as a majority white organization also talks about all the time is white uh, fragility, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, like how can we talk about this issue uh, without making it personal or making it um, painful to uh, our constituents to uh, to listen to? So it's definitely like a, a bigger issue. And I think um, you know the vast majority of uh, my uh, you know friends and, and contacts and family now who are who are white um, are open to hearing uh, more about it in this political moment because of what's going on because of the racism that's because of the, racism. the Trump, Trump and, and administration I think, and I think it is it's like um, and, it, and I think it's interesting because I think that well, I was talking with someone today who said that you know maybe the Equal Rights Amendment for women has a better chance because of the misogyny coming from. That's a really good point, because I think like when we have the illusion that we live in a you know, post-racial, post-gender society, then people will have less of a tendency to fight for equality and fight for looking back and our history and context. But now that we're living through a, a, a political moment where there are people who... Uh, actually believe that white people are superior as humans. Yeah, that they want, saying it out loud. They're saying it out loud and they're participating in the government. And yes. So this is a good moment for us to, you know, shed a light on that and at the variety of that, right? So like you don't have to be in the core of being like a, you know, white racist right. to be there. But it's also to talk about how many levels yeah. of privilege not, we have. Not just of. white nationalists benefit from white supremacy. That's right. Um, and I think like the last point that I want to make is that there are so many other layers of privilege that we also discussed, right? Like I, I brought up the issue of gender, of sexuality, like my personal gender of sexuality as, as privilege. Many of us have different layers of privilege, economic economic privilege, language privilege, geographic privilege, you know. So it's also about having these types of discussions with our with ourselves and with our communities uh, while trying to approach the larger picture. So just sort of to, to wrap up, if someone wanted to get involved in the work that you're doing um, and really fight the Muslim ban and um, help educate their communities about fighting against Islamophobia and internalizing that being less islamophobic themselves how would you tell them to approach that work so my advice is to uh, join the uh, most local organization they can find Uh, like so there are many organizations that are uh, working locally now i think you know the large organizations like the aclu uh, they are getting enough attention and support um, more attention and support than local ones so, like in DC, for example, I mentioned the Coalition for Justice for Muslims. Uh, you know, there are a couple of smaller organizations uh, or centers who are working uh, around these issues that are not getting as much attention. Um, they can also check out my or- my organization's work, AFSC, AFSC.org. Uh, we have a few good resources online. Uh, we also have a good uh, new project called uh, Sanctuary Everywhere. Uh, where we're trying to link uh, some of the issues of um, you know attacks on refugees and immigrants and Muslims and other communities under one umbrella, so that's also an interesting um, you know project to look at, uh, uh, like one larger umbrella to cover uh, a number of different uh, issues, um, and of course you know like the, the, even the, the large organizations like the ACLU, which I, I am a member of the ACLU and. 
I have been participating in, in meetings uh, with the ACLU. They are also important to support, you know, and, and try to, to give us uh, larger national blocks of pressure uh, to ask for change. So my approach is always all the above. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's always important to keep um, in mind that this is going to take years and years of work, you know. So it's about how can we uh, choose the best venues uh, to keep uh, ourselves involved uh, but without uh, overburdening uh, ourselves with with work. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, like I always err on the side of supporting local organizations mm-hmm. because this is where they are the least uh, organizations that are getting uh, support at this moment. Uh, and how, how would you recommend people start finding those organizations or founding those organizations? It's a good question. Like, like I know in D.C., like I went to a few organizations in my neighborhood uh, or meetings in my neighborhood. Uh, so it's about, you know, reading the sign on the, you know, on the wall in your neighborhood and finding about it or talking to your neighbors or going to uh, community meetings in the library. Um, it is about finding those small uh, pockets of activism uh, that are based on, uh, you know, who's living next door. Uh, so there isn't one uh, website that you can go to find everything. You know, it's more about walking down the street and, and paying attention to what's going in your, your own neighborhood. All right. Well, Rod, thank you so much for being on the show. I thank really you. appreciate you taking the time. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to How to Resist. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review. Reviews are really actually very helpful, so if you could take a minute and do that, I'd really appreciate it. Notes from the show, including links, can be found on howtoresistpodcast.com. While you're there, sign up for our email updates. Thanks to Beth Soderberg for helping with our website, Sariel Liani for logo and design, and Carolyn Hanrahan for production assistance. Thanks for listening. I'm Will O'Neill, and thank you for resisting.